Let's get started here. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to learn more about you. Lord, I pray that as we continue to study this epistle to the Colossians, that we would be blessed, and we would be blessed by your word. We pray that you would accomplish what you want to do through it here this morning in each and every one of us. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue looking at chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Two weeks ago, I think you guys talked about Jonah uh, last week um, with uh, our pastor. But two weeks ago, when we were in Colossians, we were looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And if you remember from... Where's my black mark? There it is. If you remember from... Uh, the last few weeks, I've broken Colossians into three major sections. Anyone remember what the first section is? Something in thesis. Yeah, that's right. Intro and thesis. Good. Proud of you, David. This will be on the exam, so you'll want to get this down, all right? Um, and then the second, anyone remember the second one? Second one is what we started two weeks ago, so we were just getting into it. It's about Jesus and our salvation. Yeah, exactly. Is how we're supposed to live because of that. Exactly. It's it's basically the knowledge of Christ. And then you were getting into the third one there. The third one is Christian living. All right. And um, we covered the intro and the thesis basically the first the first session on Colossians and the intro and thesis by that I don't mean an academic thesis I just mean like his purpose for the letter like why is he writing this and his purpose was that the Colossians need to have the knowledge of Christ that is they need to know who Jesus is and what he's done and that embracing this knowledge in faith namely being a Christian is going to produce fruit and then he goes into what that fruit ought to look like namely Christian living what are the things they're supposed to do what are the things they're not supposed to do And so two weeks ago, last time we were in Colossians, we were dealing with the very beginning of this section. This section starts with, I believe I said it was verse um, verse 13. There we go. So this section starts with chapter 1, verse 13, and it runs all the way through chapter 2, like so. So, and then this is chapter 3 and 4, this third section. So today, we're, our text for today is Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. So you see, we're just doing one verse today. We're not always going to do a whole bunch of verses like we have done in, in the past. Today is just verse 17. But you see that verse 17 falls under the second category here. So we're continuing to look at the knowledge of Jesus. That is, who he is and what he has done. Because if you'll remember, the Colossians... Uh, are part of a very young church. This church has not been around for very long. They're relying on the teaching of Epaphras, who heard Paul preaching the gospel in Ephesus and who brought it to the the city of Colossae. And so they need um, some apostolic teaching here to help them out. They need some scripture. That's what this epistle is, of course, is it's scripture. And so Paul is telling them the basics of what they need to know about Jesus. And therefore, these are things we need to know about Jesus too. And so we're going to start reading at verse 15. But our text is verse 17, so let's get into it here. He, this is verse 15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by Jesus all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And now here's our text. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, just so you know, verse 17 is something that I would happily do a 20-part or 20-week series on. Like, it's that big. There is so much stuff packed in here, and it was really difficult even just to teach one session on this verse. And you may be thinking, what are you, what's so big there that would take 20 weeks to talk about? Um, and that's okay if you think that. We're going to get into that here in a second. But um, what I want to focus on is the two parts of this verse uh, this morning. You see, the first part is, and Jesus is before all things. And then we'll get to the bigger one, which is the next chunk. So, and he is before all things. Paul here in verse 17 is continuing his teaching about Jesus. You remember we talked about what it means that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and that through him all things were created and all those sorts of things, putting Jesus on the same level as God because, of course, Genesis 1 teaches that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Here Paul is saying Jesus made the heavens and the earth, equating Jesus with God there. And then in verse 17, like I just said, he said, and Jesus is before all things. Jesus is before all things. Which things? All the things, right? All the things. And all the things, like in verse 16, all things were created through Jesus. That is, all created things were made by Jesus. And Jesus, in time, comes before all created things. In logic, we call that a universal affirmative, which means that all things encompasses all things. Obvious, right? All created things, everything that falls under the category of created things comes after Jesus. And that's important, because if you remember from last time, we were talking about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnessism and like uh, types of religious cults that deny that Jesus is God. Now there's a problem there, because if Paul is saying, as he does here, that Jesus is before all created things, Jesus can't be under the category of created thing. You see that? <coughs> all created things come after Jesus. Therefore, Jesus can't be listed among created things. So Jesus can't be created. It's logically impossible in this verse for Jesus to be created by God. So Jesus is God. And it's just backing up the points we were making two weeks ago when we were looking at verses 15 and 16. And of course, it's natural. Jesus comes before all created things. Why? Because he made everything. A cause always has to be before its effect. So here Paul is just saying, Jesus as God, naturally, in time, comes before every created thing in the universe. That's a strong statement of the deity of Jesus. But the next statement's even stronger, and this is the one I want to spend our time on. And in Jesus, this is 17b, all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. Now, if we were just reading this verse in our morning devotions or something, we're just like, okay, I'm following my read through the Bible in a year plan. I read two chapters in Colossians or whatever. I read this verse and I think, oh, in him all things hold together. Cool. 
Next verse. You know, oh, and he's the head of the body of the church. He's the we just read through it quickly. And part of that is we're not reading the Bible in slow motion, as Dr. Medeiros will put it, who's preached here a couple times. But the other thing is we're not familiar with what Paul is drawing upon when he makes this claim as 21st century Christians. We are very divorced culturally and intellectually from the things that Paul had to deal with in the ancient world in which he's writing this. The statement that Paul makes here when he says that Jesus upholds all things, or that in him all things hold together, that statement is a profound philosophical statement. You guys like philosophy? Yes? Okay, some people, yes. Anybody not like philosophy? <laughs> a lot of you are just on the fence. You're like, oh, I don't not like it, but I don't like it that much. Well, guess what? Paul is dealing with a lot of philosophy here. This statement is something that would have caught the attention of any Greek philosophers in Paul's day when he says that Jesus, in, in Jesus all things hold together. And that's because for the ancient Greeks, for the philosophers in Paul's day, they were in an, an intellectual quest to find something. Not, you know, searching the earth for treasure or something. It was an intellectual quest. They were searching for something with their minds. And what they were searching for is what they called the arche. The arche. Now, this word's, you know, you can kind of see it's got a resemblance in English to some words you might be able to think of. Like, say, for example, uh, monarch. And get rid of the E, of course. Monarch. In our English word monarch, it means um, one head. Or, say, one leader. And so when we refer to a king, we would call him a monarch. The one leader, the one guy who has the power and authority in the kingdom or the nation. Or we might refer to something like the archbishop. There we're using arche again, that Greek word as a prefix. The archbishop, meaning the bishop who is the head of a certain ecclesiastical region. Now, of course, as Presbyterians, we don't have archbishops, but other churches do, and that's, that's where they're using this term. The one a bishop who is in charge of everything, the one who has the authority and the power. And so that's the kind of thing that the Greeks were looking for when they were searching mentally for the arche. They were searching for one power or some kind of some kind of um, um, authority in the universe that provided the origin for everything. So for the Arche, they were looking for the origin of the universe, the one thing from which everything else comes. Now, when we think of the term origin, if I say the origin of the universe, normally we're thinking about the, the thing that caused everything to come into existence. Right? If I said, like, um, God is the origin of the universe, normally we'll think, as Americans, in terms of cause and effect, that God is the cause that brought the universe into existence. Right? Or an atheist, if you asked him, you know, what is the cause of the universe? He would say, oh, the Big Bang. Or, you know, whatever theory that he wants to embrace. The Big Bang caused the universe to come into being. And we think, of, we think in terms of cause and effect when we think of origin. That something is just the first of a chain reaction that brings things into existence. But for the Greeks, 
they didn't think about origin exactly in this way. They weren't just thinking cause and effect. But for them, they thought origin was also a kind, a kind of governor. Kind of governor. That is, that the arche is not just something that brought the universe into existence, but that the arche is also something that continually governs the universe and keeps it and holds it all together. That keeps it from falling apart. That the arche gives the universe its meaning and its purpose and its consistency. It holds everything together by the word of its power. That's the arche. It's not just the cause that brought things into existence, but it's also the thing that governs and sustains and upholds and keeps everything together. It provides unity for all the diverse things in the universe. That's the arche. That was the big thing that the ancient Greek philosophers were searching for. And this includes famous philosophers, like you probably know about, like Plato or Aristotle. You may not know much about Plato or Aristotle, I don't know, but you've probably heard of them, I'm sure. Plato was searching for the Arche. Aristotle was searching for it. Before them, Socrates was searching for it. <clears throat> but there were even lots of philosophers before Socrates that were searching for the Arche. It was the first thing philosophers searched for. And in this realm of philosophers before Socrates, which we call the pre-Socratics, there was a philosopher by the name of Thales who was searching for the Arche. I don't know if you've heard of this guy before. He's considered the founder of Greek philosophy. And Thales, as he was thinking through this issue, searching for the Arche, he's thinking, all right, what, what could be this one thing from which everything else comes and which holds everything together? the thing everything could reduce to. What's the arche? And Thales said, oh, I know what it is. It's water. Interesting solution there, isn't it? Thales would think that the thing that brings the, the universe into being and the thing that governs the universe is water. And we might think, well, that seems a little crude and doesn't really seem very sophisticated to say that Everything in the universe is controlled by water. But, if you think about it, you can kind of see where he's coming from here. Because all physical things in the universe are made up of solid, liquid, and gas. Right? Can water exist in the forms of solid, liquid, and gas? Yeah, you betcha. It can. And for Thales, he would say, like, this, this uh, podium, this Baptist pulpit that I'm standing at right here... It, <laughs> Some of you got that. Um, this thing right here is made entirely of water, Thales would say. It's just water that is so tightly compressed that it doesn't seem like water. It becomes a total solid. Whereas if you expand the water, it becomes liquid. And if you expand the water even more, then it becomes gas in the air. And you can feel all the water in the air. So everything in the physical universe, Thales would say, reduces to water. And he said, by the way, water is the thing that gives life. Living things can only go a couple days without water. They need a constant supply of this arche to keep them together. Now, we might still have some questions and some quibbles with Thales about this issue, but nonetheless, you can see his, his thinking here. That's the arche. Then there was another guy who came along called Anaximenes. I don't... Wait. 
There we go. We would never really think of that. Anaximenes came up with another idea. He said, oh, I know what the RK is. It's not water. Thales, you got it all wrong. It's not water. Guess what? The RK is air. The RK is air. And and Anaximenes said, see, living things, you, you can say that water is what gives life to living things, but you know what? Living things can go for a few days without water, but they can only go for a minute or two without air. So air is the, really the thing that's giving life, not water. And then Anaximenes came up with this idea that air, if you compress it tight enough, becomes solid like this Baptist pulpit. But and then if you expand air enough, then it becomes liquid and expand it more and it becomes gas. And that's not really scientifically credible today, I don't think, but that's what he thought before we had modern science. Then there was another guy named Empedocles. And he said, no, he said, Thales, I see your point. I can see your point, Thales. I can see your point, Anaximenes. These are great baby names, by the way. But here's the deal. Empedocles said, listen, guys. Thales, you're on to something. Anaximenes, you're on to something. But, hold on, you're both wrong. Because here's what the RK really is. The RK is water and air and fire and earth. Now, have you ever heard of this before? Yeah. You've heard of this in all kinds of movies and TV shows and books and things, right? This is sometimes the common um, uh, view of the basic elements of the earth. It comes from Empedocles and the Greek philosophers, ancient Greek philosophers before Socrates. Water, air, fire, and earth. And Empedocles said everything in the world reduces to these four elements in some, some combination, and these are the four things that give life. Because every living being needs water, every living being needs air, every living being needs heat, and every living being comes from the dust, comes from the earth in some fashion. So that's what Empedocles said. And then later philosophers came along and said, wait a minute, you got a problem here, Empedocles, because two things. One, we're looking for one arche, one authority, one power, one thing that gives unity to all the diverse things in the universe. You can't have unity if you've got four arches. That doesn't work. You need one, one thing that holds everything together. This doesn't work in Pedicles. And by the way, another philosopher came along, and this is the one I really want to emphasize here, because this is where it relates to what Paul is talking about in Colossians. You thought I was hoping this was just a philosophy class and not a Bible class. We're getting to the point here. Heraclitus came along and said, hey, Empedocles, guess what? You've got a mistake here. Because you and Anaximenes and Thales all think that the Arche is something physical. You all think that the whole universe, the power, the origin, the governorship, everything reduces to some kind of physical entity. Guess what? That's not the case. The Arche is actually something non-physical. And Heraclitus said the Arche is this. He said it is called the Logos. The Arche is the Logos. And what Heraclitus meant by the Logos is he meant something that he called a rational principle, a rational principle. Now, for Heraclitus, he was a Pythagorean. What do you know about the Pythagoreans? 
Yeah, they have a theorem, okay? A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? That's about all the math some of us know, including me. Um, but yeah, Heracles was a Pythagorean. He put a heavy emphasis on math and logic. And so he said, hey, the logos is a rational principle. That is, it's the, the rational laws that govern the universe. And this logos is a power, a pulsating power, that moves throughout the whole universe and caused it to come into existence... And governs it. Because the laws of nature, he said, brought it into existence, and the laws of nature uphold everything. They keep it together. They keep everything from falling apart. And Heraclitus said, that is the arche. It's the logos. It's a logic. A rational principle that holds everything together. Now, there's some truth to that, right? I mean... We do believe there are laws of nature that are in place that hold everything together and keep everything the same way. The laws of physics, for example, those sorts of things. But there are also some things lacking in Heraclitus' idea here of, the, of, of what governs the universe and what brought it into being. And what's really fascinating, I think, is that the biblical authors pick up on this debate. And particularly, John picks up on Heraclitus' view here, because this Logos is not something that stopped with Heraclitus. This Logos continued through the philosophers, and Socrates talked about it, uh, Plato talked about it, and Aristotle thoroughly developed it, and Aquinas later developed it even more. But what's interesting here is that if you turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but John chapter 1, if you look at verse 1, in the English you will see John say, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But, if you looked at the Greek, it would say, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. What John is doing there is he is he could have used any other word there's lots of words for word in the greek language but he chose to use the word logos and he pulls it out of its philosophical background this loaded word that's just got philosophy just hanging and dripping from it and he plugs it into his gospel in the opening statement and he says in the beginning was the logos in the beginning was that thing that brought the universe into existence and that governs the universe on a daily basis, holding everything together. That Logos was with God and that Logos was God. And so John is pulling this Greek philosophical concept out and he's saying, look, this, the Greeks were onto something. They were onto this. But then John does something is he twists it. He gives it a special twist that the Greek philosophers aren't expecting. And in verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says, And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, this Logos, unlike what Heraclitus taught, is not simply a rational principle. The Logos is not some kind of impersonal power pulsating through the universe. But rather, the Logos is a person. The origin and the governor of the universe is a person. 
And that person took on human nature and came down to accomplish salvation for his people. That is something the Greek philosophers would have never thought of on their own and would have been absolutely um, absolutely shocking to them reading John's Gospel. The Logos is not something impersonal, but the Logos is a person. The Logos is in one sense God and in another sense distinguished from God. And we call that the second person of the Trinity, namely Jesus Christ. That is Jesus in Scripture is the Logos. Jesus is the one who created all things and who in him all things hold together. This is um, thoroughly picked up by the author of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, and I'll just read it for you here quick. It says, in, excuse me, um, it says, Jesus, this is Hebrews 1, 3, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the logos of his power. See, the author of Hebrews is picking up on this. Jesus is the one who brought everything into existence and who governs everything. And that is the idea that Paul is picking up here in Colossians 1.17 when he says, In Jesus, all things hold together. That is, in Jesus, everything not only came into being, that is, Jesus didn't just make everything and then step away and doesn't do anything, just letting the universe run according to its rational principles, a law of nature. Paul's not a deist. He says that God made everything and stepped away. No, Jesus made everything, brought everything into being, and then he upholds everything. Everything holds together by the power of Jesus because he is at work governing everything every moment. He is sovereign. In him all things hold together. All the diverse things in the universe find their unity in him. All the diverse things in the universe find their meaning and their purpose and their consistency in the person of Jesus. Now, if you want to talk about a verse that shows the deity of Jesus more clearly. I don't know if you can find one that's better than this, if you understand all the background of what Paul's saying here. Because if you were reading the Old Testament, it would be absolute heresy to say that anyone except Yahweh brought things into being and governs everything. That Yahweh created everything, and that in him all things hold together. The Hebrews would happily say Yahweh did that. They would never attribute that to a mere creature. Yet Paul here, very clearly, says Jesus is the one who made everything and holds it all together. You won't find a clear example of Jesus being God, I don't think, than this verse if you understand what's behind it. Now you can see why I could do a 20-part series on this, can't you? Because we could just talk about philosophy all the time. That would be so much fun. But I know you're not philosophers. I'm just trying to introduce you to what's going on here. In him all things hold together. Now, just as we sort of try to put a cap on this and think about what it means, what does, how does understanding this about Jesus change 
or not necessarily change, but help us in our worship, help us in our understanding of who Jesus is, help us understand the gospel. And I'm looking for a response here. What, how does understanding this impact us as his people? Let me just ask you, what do you think? I've got plenty of ideas, and I can talk for a long time more. But I'm just curious if you got anything you can think of. Why don't you share them with us? <laughs> right. You guys are good Presbyterians. You just want to be taught all kinds of stuff, right? Um, so I'll talk about a few things here. You'll be thinking, though. You'll be thinking. One thing I think that impacts me is, you know, when we are in worship and we're worshiping our Savior Jesus... I think sometimes we might have a tendency to separate the members of the the first and second persons of the Trinity and think that God is the one who's sovereign and Jesus is just kind of sitting in heaven not doing anything. I don't know if you've ever thought that before. That's kind of, I don't know if any of us would ever say that explicitly, but for me, I think that's just something I've just kind of assumed until I really studied the background of, of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Jesus is not sitting in heaven doing nothing. He's at the right hand of the Father, meaning he has authority. And he is sovereign over everything that's happening. He holds everything together. Jesus is not doing nothing up in heaven. And that makes me very comfortable, I think, in resting in the sovereignty of our God. Because Jesus has got the whole world in his hands. That's one thing that I appreciate about this. Another thing I appreciate about this actually has to do with something that um, many of us maybe wouldn't think of as an application for this text, and that is this has a lot to do with education. What? I can read your minds. You're like, what are you talking about? Education. What does this have to do with education? Well, somebody throw out for me, somebody throw out for me different fields of study that there are in the schools right now. What are some fields of study? History. History. All right, good. What else you got? Civil rights. Civil rights, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe like, I don't know where I would put that, but sure, civil rights. I'm trying to think, would it go under sociology or something? Or... Okay, what else? Biology. Biology, okay. Maybe could we, could we put that under the category of science? Mm-hmm. Just then we don't have a whole bunch of different sciences being... Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got science. What else? Mathematics. Mathematics, okay, and I'm going to say math because it's easier to write. What else? What? Arts. Arts, okay, arts. What else? English. English or language more generally. So we don't get French and all the other languages up there. What else? You're missing a big one. Okay, Bible, theology, something like that, okay. I was just thinking about reading, but would reading go into language, probably? You know, actually, I might put reading under literature. Okay. So we could do lit. That's a big one. Okay. That was the big one I was thinking of. Anything else you can think of? How about philosophy? (laughs) Come on, you got (laughs) to give me that here. We just had a whole conversation about that. We were thinking of elementary schools. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, you know what? In the Middle Ages, they taught philosophy to elementary school, school kids. They were studying Aristotle when they were in fourth grade. It's insane. 
though they didn't call it fourth grade back then. <laughs> Anything else you want to add here, quick? All right, so we've got a whole diverse list of, of fields of study in academics. Right? And you study these, most of these kinds of things from the time you're just very little, and as you continue to grow, you expand your knowledge of these kinds of studies. All, right? all these different fields of academics. Now, all of these fields, what they're doing is they are studying different aspects of creation. Right? Isn't that what they're doing? They are studying different aspects of creation. History is studying the things that have happened throughout history, obviously. Things that have happened in the past. Trying to collect the facts and interpret what's going on. Civil rights, kind of similar, but also analyzing issues today of that sort of thing. Science is looking at the world that God made and trying to understand the logic of how it all fits together. Language is trying to understand grammar. And maybe you could throw rhetoric in there too how to form proper sentences according to the rules of language, and then how to communicate effectively to people. Literature is studying people as mini-creators. Maybe you didn't think of literature that way, but human beings are sort of mini-creators. We're creating our own stories in literature, whether true or fictional, and these stories are being interpreted and understood by the people studying them. That's one of the beauties of literature. You're studying many creators. Studying the Bible, of course, God's Word. Studying being uh, the study of being a creator of sculptures or um, paintings or those sorts of things. Studying the principles that govern mathematics, numbers, abstract things, philosophies, trying to understand the universe, what, how the universe works, how we know how the universe works, epistemology, studying ethics, ethics falls under philosophy, what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. There's all kinds of studies here. They're studying different aspects of God's world, aren't they? That's the point. Different aspects of God's world. Now, what I hear oftentimes from various people, whether it's you know in, in junior high or high school or college or even grad school or those sorts of things, I'll hear, I'll hear people say, you know, I don't want to be an English Professor, I don't want to be in an English something or other. I don't want to be a, a history major. Why do I have to study this? You know, my major is not literature in my undergrad. Why do I have to take a American literature course or something? Why do I have to do that? It doesn't matter to me. I hear that all, all the time. I'm sure you've heard it too. I'm sure your kids have probably said something to you about that if they're in school. I certainly said things like that to my parents. They're like, why do I have to take this? It's not my major. Why do I have to do this? Right? I'm sure you've heard that before. But here's the thing. If we say stuff like that, we are operating under a non-Christian worldview. If we say stuff like that, we're operating under a non-Christian worldview because... For the non-Christian, particularly for something like the atheist or the nihilist, they will say, well, there's no purpose to the universe, there's no meaning, and so study something if you feel like it, if it gives you some kind of meaning yourself, but there's nothing outside of you, and none of these fields have any, have any absolute meaning anyway, so you know, just do whatever feels good to you. If you enjoy studying it, then study it. If you don't enjoy it, don't enjoy it. It doesn't matter. And many of us have bought into that kind of view when it comes to this. Because for a Christian worldview, 
As Christians, we see that all of these different fields of study are connected to the Logos. Namely, they're connected to Jesus because Jesus gives everything its meaning and its purpose and its consistency. And so when we're studying history, we're studying the things that Jesus has been ordaining before the foundation of the world, things that have happened. Like our confession says, God has ordained whatsoever has come to pass. We're studying what God and Jesus have been doing in history. We're studying all the laws of nature and the laws of mathematics. We're studying language. The lang- languages maybe that God inspired the Bible in or maybe our own language so we can better communicate his word. There's all kinds of purposes for studying all of these different kinds of things. And they all find their meaning under the Logos. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be you know, professional uh, scholars in every single field. Good luck. You won't be able to accomplish that. Thomas Aquinas tried. I don't think he ever did, even though he was way smarter than all of us put together. But we should have an appreciation for all of the studies and never say that one of them doesn't matter for us because all of us, or sorry, all of these studies reveal Jesus to us. We can see him in all of them. And that's one of the premises of what's called classical education. This is the model of classical education, to teach well all students all of these subjects so that they can learn to be people made after the image of God. Because when we study all the things that God has made, we see Jesus from countless angles and not just one or two. That's sort of an indirect application of this passage, right, of of what Paul's getting at here, but I think it's the truth. I think that there's so much here for us to glean from in all of the subjects. Even if we're not in school, we can still learn. I had a wonderful man at my um, church in South Dakota. We just talked all the time about all kinds of these things because we were into all of this. We would, one day we'd be talking about philosophy after church. The next day we'd be talking about literature after church. The next day we'd be talking about history. Or we'd be talking about science or biology or something. We were talking about um, cellular reproduction one day and just how it manifests the glory of God. Because we've been studying all kinds of different things and we've been pouring our hearts into it. And it was, it was wonderful. And we could see Jesus in all of it. Because in Jesus, all these things find their meaning and their purpose and their consistency. Okay. Right, there was more I wanted to say, but we're out of time now. Anything that you guys thought of as I was talking? Maybe not, but... What do you think happens when those subjects are covered and not directed toward the Logos? Well, there's two things that can happen. One... Um, I one guess I'll be that, a little more pointed, a non-Christian education. Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. I would say there's two things that could happen. The first thing that happens is they fail to, the student fails to see the Logos because it's not present and therefore comes to a wrong worldview, actually. The other thing that can happen is if they're being taught from a non-Christian perspective, they can go on their own and find the Logos or they can think the Logos on their own even when it's not being presented and then they can see it and then they can learn to love Jesus even more. That was um, my experience at uh, a state university when I was in high school. I did a, I think I mentioned this last Sunday when I was preaching, that there was um, a year, my, my senior year in high school, when I was taking classes at a state university. And of course, there was no Logos present there, no Jesus, no God, no Bible, no anything. But when I was studying geology there, 
even though the professor was constantly telling us this stuff evolved, there's no God, you know, the the um, the rocks prove billions of years and that it all evolved and came out of the Big Bang. I saw in all of that, even though she was saying all those things, I saw the beauty of creation because I saw I'm like, wow, look at what God made. Look at these trees and how they work. And the scientist is explaining to me all the intricate processes of how they grow, how they grow leaves, how the leaves fall off, how all the cells work. And I'm just thinking, my goodness, how can you possibly think that these things all came from nothing? And I was able to see the Logos even though it wasn't being presented. So I think there's the two things that can happen there. And the, the latter is my experience doing that. But with that being said, I do think that this is the superior model when it comes to education. I'm a big advocate for classical Christian education. All right, so you can't tell. So anything else? The nice thing is that we're all Presbyterians, and regardless where our kids learn, right, God's in charge of salvation. It is He who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of us. But all right. Well, let's close in prayer here. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for this text of your apostle. Lord, in it there is much to be gleaned as we see that you hold all things together. Lord, you are, as your apostle John put it, the Logos, you are the one who brought everything into being and who upholds it all by your own power. Lord, we pray that this would motivate us to worship you even more this morning as we enter into your sanctuary to sing praises to you and to glorify you and to hear your word proclaimed. Lord, help us not to think that you're idle, but you are working. Lord, help us to think carefully about the implications of the fact that you give everything its meaning and its purpose and its consistency. Help us to see that. Help us to see that we can learn about you from countless angles and all sorts of things. Because when we study your creation, we ought to first and foremost search for you. And we ought not to see the studies as ends in themselves. Lord, give each and every one of us that desire to search for you in your creation so that we can see how great you are. Lord, motivate us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning as we enter into your sanctuary. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.